The fiery sun beats down on a yellow land. You are in the desert. It is hot, it is dry, it is dusty. Sitting on a mat made from papyrus reeds, you cross your legs and lay a wooden board across your lap. You unfurl a papyrus scroll across the wood, and then dip your pen into a bottle of ink and begin to write. As you write, you look up at the cloud of dust which swirls across the area. Through that dust, you can see a marvellous sight. Hundreds of men, their limbs stretching and straining, are hauling massive stones across the desert floor. With ropes, sleds and water, they move great slabs, bringing them up from a quarry nearby. These stones are not as large as those used by future generations, but still they are impressive. As you watch, the men struggle with their loads. Turning back to your papyrus, you smile. The work is proceeding smoothly, and the construction site is coming together. As you copy down notes and measurements, the men begin to haul their stones up ramps against the side of a vast and growing structure. All across the plateau, labourers are putting together the world's first pyramid. It is the beginning of a great age. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 4, The Sacred Ones. Today, we begin the legendary Pyramid Age, the centuries-long period in which Egyptians worked tirelessly to construct their most famous and enduring monuments. It all begins with a project that we call the Step Pyramid. Today, we're going to explore how this immense monument was constructed, and more importantly, why it appeared when it did. Along the way, we'll meet the men who developed it, and come to grips with their place in history, as people and as legends. It's a big story, so grab a coffee, or a nutritious beer, staple of the Egyptian diet, and settle in as we immerse ourselves in a truly dynamic part of history. The year was 2680 BCE, approximately. The land of Egypt was at peace after a period of economic turbulence and possibly civil conflict. There had been some difficult days for commoner and royalty alike. Thankfully, those were passing. King Kasakemwi, the two powers appear, had saved the country from a dire situation. By politics or by force, he had crushed dissent and re-established order. Kasa Kemwi's authority was immense, and when he died, he left behind a stable and secure kingdom. When Kasa Kemwi passed away, the throne passed to a new man. Possibly his son, the new king buried Kasa Kemwi with full honours in his magnificent royal tomb at Abydos. There, Kasa Kemwi went to his rest, an immortal figure in political history. The new king of Upper and Lower Egypt was named Netjeri Ket Djoser. This name translates as 
divine of body, Net Jeriket, the sacred one, Djoser. In life, the king was probably known mainly as Net Jeriket, the name he used as king and as a living Horus ruler. I will refer to him by both names interchangeably. Net Jeriket Djoser has a legacy of pious, capable rule. Later generations remembered him as a wise man who averted disasters and helped preserve the sacred order of the world. By Egyptian standards, Netjeriket Djosa was a good king, and as we'll see, his good rule made him immortal. We will talk about Djosa's life and his reign in part two of this episode. First, we have to talk about his most famous accomplishment. It's what you came for, and it's the defining feature of this period. Let's explore Nejeriket's Step Pyramid. The Step Pyramid dominates the horizon of the city called Memphis. Memphis, or Ineb Hedge, the White Wall, was the capital city of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, at a place connecting the southern and northern halves of the country together, Memphis was a sprawling town of mud-brick homes. It was also the location of a vast necropolis. West of Memphis, on a rocky plateau rising above the Nile Valley, the necropolis of Saqqara is home to hundreds of ancient tombs. Tombs of commoners, nobles, and kings alike are crammed into this area, and the sacred space is filled with the detritus of great monuments. Some of these are ruins now, but others endure, splendid testaments to the lives of their owners. When King Djoser came to power, he found the necropolis of Saqqara a small but growing cemetery. There were a few tombs of some prominent officials, and plenty of tiny graves. By the time Djoser died, though, the area had been transformed. Now, the plateau of Saqqara and the western horizon of Memphis was dominated by a new type of monument. Rising into the sky, a vast mountain of stone had been erected, a mountain that marked the burial place of a powerful and accomplished king. This mountain is the Steppe Pyramid. The Steppe Pyramid stands alone, dominating its environment. 60 metres tall, over 200 feet, it climbs above the horizon in a mass of solid limestone construction. 125 metres long, 109 wide, the pyramid is a vast assemblage of masonry and sculpted stone. It is a truly magnificent work. The pyramid rises in six layers of ever-decreasing size. Looked at from the side, it resembles a giant staircase, a mound rising in terraces up into the sky. The shape of the pyramid is possibly quite symbolic. In ancient Egyptian religion, it was thought that the universe had begun when a mound of earth emerged out of the primeval ocean which had been there before creation. The concept of the mound, or benben, may be one of the inspirations for the steppe pyramid itself. But symbolism or not, the Step Pyramid is designed for one primary function. It is there as a tomb to protect the body of the king and to help ensure his resurrection in the next life. So to understand this pyramid, we will first visit its chambers. To reach the tomb, we need to go past the monument and around to its northern edge. There, 
we come to a stone temple which butts up against the northern wall of the pyramid and provides a place for worshipping the great king. Within this temple, priests would make offerings and invoke protection for the spirit of great King Djoser. They would also guard the entrance to the tomb itself. Fortunately, we know where that is. The temple is a simple limestone building which houses statues of the king and provides a space for worship. In the floor of the temple, though, a small pit leads to a passageway. If we follow this corridor, we will find ourselves going under the pyramid itself. Lighting a torch, we clamber down and make our way underground. You go down into the gloom, deeper and deeper into the rock. The ceiling is low, you'll need to crouch. It is a long way down, and after a while, your legs and back begin to ache. Behind you, the light of the outside begins to fade, and the entrance dwindles in the distance. Ahead, the darkness grows ever deeper, and the corridors seem to close in around you. I hope you're not claustrophobic. At last, you reach the bottom. You find yourself in a huge gallery. It is square-shaped, and the ceiling rises high overhead. You are almost directly beneath the centre of the pyramid, and above you, thousands of tons of masonry press down. It's okay, the shaft is reinforced, and the structure above is more than secure. Take your time, look around. Down here, you are in the very heart of the most symbolic chambers. It is the sacred core of the monument, the resting place of the body, and the eternal home of the king's soul. You're standing on a rough floor, mostly sand. Technically, this is not the bottom. You're standing on a huge amount of debris that has piled up over the years. But that's the closest you can get to the basement nowadays. Around you, blocks of white limestone and masonry are pale shadows in the dark. Beneath your feet, several meters below, the royal sarcophagus rests in its crypt. It is a huge chest made of granite, quarried hundreds of miles away and carried here by riverboat. Within that sarcophagus, the remains of Djoser himself, wrapped in linen and coated in resin, will rest for eternity. All around you, the chamber is designed to protect that single, simple chest. The mummy of the king was never found. The body was lost to looting long ago. So the sarcophagus is now empty, a silent testament to a once sacred space. Out of respect, we will leave the chamber and explore the rest of the monument now. There is more to see besides this inner hall. You see, unlike most pyramids, the burial chamber of Djosa is also accompanied by a whole series of rooms and passageways. Outside the burial hall, a vast number of galleries and corridors stretch out through the bedrock. Hallways twist and turn in a subterranean complex that can truly be called a labyrinth. Down here, every turn takes you somewhere new. The step pyramid is full of ancient hidden spaces. Corridors stretch away into the darkness, and they twist and turn in a labyrinthian maze. These galleries are storerooms and passages. Once, they were filled with an assembly of goods. Netjerikat Djosa went to his afterlife surrounded with beautiful objects. Furniture, jewellery, offerings of food and drink. Lovely pieces, of which tiny fragments have survived the centuries. The most impressive goods are a series of stone vases and jars, gathered together and placed within the halls. 
These vessels are impressive in craftsmanship, beautiful works in their own right. But what makes them really interesting is that most of them do not belong to King Djoser. Instead, most of these vessels came from earlier kings of Egypt. Djoser's tomb once held objects of great rulers from the first and second dynasties. Among others, there were relics of Namer, Jer, the son of Aha, Anejib, and Semerket, also Hotep Sekemwi and Ninecher of Dynasty II, and also Kasekemwi, maybe Djoser's father. If some of those names are unfamiliar, don't worry, they're just early kings that I skipped over. The relics of these kings take the form of stone vessels like pots and vases. They come in many shapes, and they're decorated with the names of the different kings. Some of them are pretty cool, like a vessel which seems to be shaped like a fortress tower thing? What their significance is, we're not sure. Perhaps Djoser was a collector of royal memorabilia, or perhaps he wanted his tomb to be a culmination of all previous kings up to him. Whatever the cause, the vast assemblage of goods was a fascinating event. We'll leave the burial goods and look around a bit more. You may not have noticed in the hurry to examine all the trinkets, but the halls and chambers of this underground complex have a most interesting decoration. Over the walls and doorways of the steppe pyramid complex, there are many sections covered in blue tiles. These tiles are made of turquoise, a blue mineral that Egyptians gathered out in the Sinai Peninsula. Turquoise was powerfully symbolic. It could represent rebirth, new life, and prosperity. So the steppe pyramid's hallways were decorated in a green-blue that may have represented the sky, or even the infinite waters of the primeval ocean. Suffice to say, these blue tiles were both a beautiful decoration and a curious feature of the pyramid as a symbol. To go along with the blue sky of the tiles, many of the stone blocks were actually decorated with stars. These stars, carved into the stone itself, captured the heavenly sky. We could imagine that once upon a time, the tomb of Djoser evoked a beautiful constellation of celestial lights, glimmering in the sky of heaven. Resting in his sarcophagus, the king's body could look up at the sky, watching as his soul traversed the firmament. A good way to sleep, if you ask me. It's time to leave the steppe pyramid and return to the outside world. We have a bit more to see in our tour of the ancient complex. I would hate for you to miss some other fascinating structures. Stepping back outside, the sunlight and warm air is a relief. Emerging from the passageway, we are in the northern temple once again. Statues of the king gaze at us, their sombre faces a mark of the king's dignity and his mystery. Take a moment, say a prayer or offering to the king. It was kind of him to let us inside. Behind you, the towering edifice of the steppe pyramid blocks out the sun, casting a long shadow over the buildings around it. It is now early afternoon, and the day is beginning to move on. Let's hurry to explore the complex around us. As a monument, the steppe pyramid is incredibly elaborate, a real accomplishment for Egyptian architects. But when you look at it in context, it's on a whole other level of amazing. Having visited the depths, let's take a look at it from the bird's eye. 
If we could fly to the heavens and gaze down on this pyramid, we would see an elaborate and fascinating space. The first thing you would notice is how big the overall complex is. It's vast, larger than most towns from the same period. You could take the population of Memphis just nearby, dump it in the Step Pyramid complex, and have room to spare. For the time period, this monument is absolutely enormous. The Step Pyramid sits towards the northern end of a huge rectangular enclosure. This space covers nearly 40 acres of ground, 16 hectares. It is surrounded by an enormous wall, more than 10 metres tall, or 32 feet. This marks out the enclosure and keeps the ordinary, mundane world at bay. Within the walls, the complex is filled with different structures that serve a variety of purposes. Within the Steppe Pyramid complex, there are shrines for worshipping the king and the gods. There is a courtyard, larger than the pyramid itself, for ceremonies and gatherings of the powerful. There are storerooms and granaries to hold food and tools that might be needed in worship. There are also temples, where priests can worship the gods and make offerings for the well-being of the king. There are more structures than I can explain, that's for sure. Some of them are still being excavated today. The Step Pyramid and its complex have everything that a government could need. There is a house for the king, shrines for the gods, spaces for ceremonies, and storehouses for food and tools. It's not just lifeless stone, it's a functioning model of the royal palace, even of the state itself. Within the walls of this sacred area, ceremonies and rituals could preserve the political order and ensure that the power of King Joseph endured in the afterlife. The Step Pyramid is not just a tomb, it is a tool. A tool of royal power propagated through eternity. Essentially, the Step Pyramid and its surrounding buildings function both as a tomb and sacred space, but also as a palace and city under themselves. It is the Eternal City, at the very heart of Egypt. The Steppe Pyramid is a towering achievement in architecture. It is both symbolic, capturing an idea of power and religious authority, and also practical, with spaces for worship and activity that enhance the simple tomb deep beneath the monument. If there is one structure in Egypt worth learning everything about, it is probably the Steppe Pyramid of Netjeriket Djoser. We've explored the monument itself, now let's go behind the curtain. In this second chapter, I want to meet the people who designed it and built it, and see how the Step Pyramid came to be. Surprisingly, it wasn't supposed to be a pyramid at all. The Step Pyramid was the culmination of many developments in architecture. For the past 300 years, ever since the Egyptian kingdom came into existence, architects had been designing tombs for the rich and the powerful. Every generation had its own ideas, and over the centuries, many small developments took place. Long story short, the Step Pyramid is the result of a couple of important developments. First of all, it didn't actually begin as a pyramid. 
It started as a quite different monument, a flat, rectangular structure that we call a mastaba. A mastaba, or bench in Arabic, is a flat-topped edifice with a shaft in the centre for the burial. They were the go-to tomb design for wealthy government officials of the day. Well, the Steppe Pyramid started as one of those. When King Netjeriket came to power, he commissioned his architect to design a grand mastaba tomb for his burial. Sometime in the early construction phase, the architect of this mastaba decided that maybe they could actually try something new. He had an idea. By adding a second layer, then a third, and so on, he could make something that hadn't been seen before. In the end, the architect wound up with a design of six mastabas on top of one another. They got smaller as they went, larger probably wouldn't have worked as well, and they ended up looking like a staircase to heaven. As a result, the first pyramid was kind of a fluke. The second noteworthy part of this pyramid is that the step pyramid is the first monument in Egyptian history to be made entirely out of stone. Great blocks of limestone were quarried nearby and dragged up to the site by labourers. Hauling huge wooden sleds, the work teams brought this limestone from a quarry near the Nile to the site of the pyramid itself. Hard work, but it paid off. Because the monument was built in stone, it could support more weight, and that may be what gave the architect the idea to start going upwards. With stone at the core, the structure could endure in a way that no tomb had achieved yet. Clearly, it worked well. The monument persists today, and although time has weathered it terribly, renovation work continues to protect it for the future. The man who commissioned this enormous monument, King Netjeriket Djoser, is a legend in the Egyptian annals. He was remembered fondly as an accomplished ruler, and for more than 2,000 years after his death, Djoser was the subject of veneration and respect. Djoser was born around 2700 BCE, under the majesty of King Kemwi. He may have been the son of that king, or perhaps a nephew, we're not sure. But when King Kemwi died, Djoser took power smoothly, and the crown came to him without trouble. Djoser buried Kemwi in a lavish tomb, and donated objects to the burial, objects bearing his name as well. When Djosa came to the throne, he took the name Netjeriket, Divine of Form. This is actually the name by which the archaeological material refers to him. The name Djosa doesn't appear until much later, and we're not sure if it's his real name, or kind of an epithet that later generations used. For this reason, some Egyptologists have started to abandon the name Djosa entirely, and refer to this king by the name he is called in hieroglyphs, Netjeriket. The divine of form. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. When Ned Jediket Joza took power, Egypt was at peace and prosperity was returning after a difficult time. The Nile floods were beginning to rise again, and the Egyptians were able to feed themselves more effectively. Now, with life stabilizing, the king was able to make some bold moves. Like Kasa Kemwe, Joza continued to expand the government and pushed the kingdom in new directions. Sometimes this was peaceful, like a series of mining expeditions out to the Sinai Peninsula. In the hot, dusty environment of Sinai, Egyptian miners searched for sources of turquoise and copper. These were valuable resources for the Egyptians. The turquoise was used for decorating his tomb, and also for jewellery. The copper, meanwhile, was used for tools, and also for weapons. That came in handy as well. Netjeriket Joza may have led a raid or campaign west of Egypt into the land that is now Libya. Out in Libya, nomadic tribes roamed grasslands, oases, and the desert. Such nomads were hard to control, and the Egyptians often had trouble with them. As you can imagine, settled societies do not like having uncontrollable, wandering groups on their borders. So Netjeriket did something about it. He led a band of warriors into the west to take prisoners, steal livestock, and kill any who resisted. This small but violent campaign was probably a good way to prove himself as a ruler and a man by ancient Egyptian standards. Sinai and Libya were subject to Egyptian incursions, both peaceful and military. Back at home, though, Joza also implemented several domestic policies, a few traces of which survive today. The king built new shrines to the gods, most notably at the city of Iunu, aka Heliopolis. Here, at a sacred space, Netjeriket dedicated a new shrine for the worship of great gods. Today, a small fragment of this shrine and its hieroglyphs survives. Quote, the gods say to Netjeriket Joza, This most perfect house of eternity is that which I have made, I have done this. To Joza I have given all life which is within my sight, to him I have given all dominion which is within my sight. I have allowed that Joza make millions of jubilee festivals. I have set him up as the heir of this house which I have made. With respect to all things which Joza desires, everything that he has said is done for him. End quote. That text is fragmented, and translations are heavily reconstructed. But the gist of it gives us a good look at Netjeriket as a pious king, who gave to the gods, and in return received their blessings. It is a classic relationship, reciprocity in action between man and god. Net Jeriket's life is a bit murky most of the time. Even if we know more about him than some other early kings, he's still a bit of a question mark. That, unfortunately, is just the way it goes for many of the earliest rulers. Lack of evidence makes them hard to pin down, and all we have are a few traces in art, in monuments, and in stories. Still, it's better than nothing. The king will forever be associated with his great monument, the Steppe Pyramid. That's fair enough, we know more about this structure than we do about the king himself. But the Steppe Pyramid wasn't built by Net Jediket. He may have commissioned it, and done a few rituals for starting the process, 
But the real work was done by labourers, and the design was done by someone else entirely. Someone quite famous. The architect of the steppe pyramid has achieved a whole different kind of immortality. The designer of this monument became a household name among later Egyptians, and he was eventually worshipped as a god in his own right. His name was Imhotep, and he is a most curious man. Imhotep was born somewhere around 2700 BCE, give or take. He was quite possibly Joza's younger brother, a second son of the royal household. When Joza took power as king, Imhotep may have been granted a high-ranking job as part of the family's control of the government. Eventually, he became the leader of Joza's architectural projects. Imhotep's name means satisfaction is with him, or he is pleasing. Hotep is a common name in ancient Egyptian. Depending on context, it can mean things like satisfying, pleased, or even at peace. Hotep is often combined with the name of a god, so you'll find people like Ra-Hotep, Ra is satisfied, or Ptah-Hotep, Ptah is pleased. It's a very common name, Imhotep just happens to be the most famous to bear it. Imhotep served his king in a variety of ways. He was the overseer of vase makers, which really means something like overseer of the people who carve stone. He was also a high priest, serving the god Ptah in the city of Memphis. Ptah, lord of craftsmen, was the patron of architects, sculptors, and labourers. In other words, he was perfect for a man who would work on the king's great monuments. Imhotep, high priest of Ptah and overseer of stone carvers, took charge of building Joza's tomb. It was Imhotep who set up the mastaba, and Imhotep who began to innovate on the design as construction began. For more than two decades, Imhotep oversaw building work at Saqqara. His steady eye and capable mind helped to shape Egypt's first pyramid. Surprisingly, we know very little about Imhotep the man. We know nothing of his family. Was he married? Did he have children? Was he really Joza's brother, or is this merely speculation? The answers are still unknown, because Imhotep's tomb has never been found, and his mummy is lost. Wherever he was buried, Imhotep has disappeared into the sands of time. Although we know almost nothing of his life, we know a lot about Imhotep's reputation. His work lasted the ages, and the story of his accomplishments was legends within the annals of Egyptian history. Eventually, the man's reputation grew into a sort of religious cult, and more than a thousand years after his death, people began worshipping Imhotep as a god. Around the time of Egypt's new kingdom, about 1400 BCE, Imhotep begins to appear in art and religious literature as a kind of wise man. He listens to prayers, and people make offerings to him, begging for his assistance. They appeal to Imhotep as a father of knowledge, as a master of medicine, and as a man who had escaped mortality to become divine in his own right. By the time 500 BCE rolled around, more than 2,000 years after he died, Imhotep was worshipped as part of the Egyptian pantheon. Not bad for an architect. The steppe pyramid came along at a time when Egyptians, specifically the elites, were able to look past their borders and explore new ideas. 
They could do this because they had an economic foundation to launch from, and the spirit to develop traditional concepts into new forms. The step pyramid may be the brainchild of one man, or a team working together, but it also represents the grand culmination of a nationwide prosperity, a revival of Egypt's fortunes. Netjeriket, Imhotep and their government were thriving in a new age. Throughout the country, wealth and prosperity were returning. The Nile flood was rising again, and the farms were becoming more fertile each year. Up and down the river's length, farming communities were beginning to recover from the long years of difficulty. Netjeriket Joza rode this wave of prosperity to great reputation. He had the resources to commission great projects, and the stability to see them through to the end. What's more, he lived a long life, long enough that he could enjoy his wealth and see his great projects finished before he died. From the northern edges of the country all the way to the southern border, Netjeriket's kingdom was in an age of prosperity. That prosperity expresses itself not just in more archaeological material, but also more monuments. Thanks to some good preservation, we even know the names of some of Joseph's family and his most loyal servants. We've already met Imhotep, the architect, but there are other names as well. As we roll towards the conclusion of this episode, I would like to give them a brief moment in the sun. The king's mother was named Ni Ma'at Hap, a.k.a. True for the Apis Bull. She was probably the wife of Kasa Kemwe, the previous king, and she was given great honours by Joza in his reign. When Ni Ma'at Hap died, Joza buried her in an enormous tomb. This was a vast mastaba, a good 85 metres long and 45 wide. That's 278 by 147 feet. Even today, despite erosion, the monument of Nima'at Hap stands a good 8 metres tall, making it a huge landmark on the desert's edge. This queen was, like several women before her, buried in utter splendour for the time. Joza also had a high-ranking servant, an official who served in his government and was buried with great honours in a lavish tomb. This man was named Hesi Ra, aka One Who Praises Ra. Hesi Ra was an overseer of work gangs, meaning he probably helped to organise the labour force that built the Steppe Pyramid. If Imhotep was in charge of designing and quarrying, Hesi Ra may have gathered the manpower necessary to do all that heavy work. Finally, Hesi Ra had the excellent title of Overseer of Physicians and Dentists. The doctors of ancient Egypt were meticulous and methodical, even if their knowledge was far more limited than the modern world. Working on a basic understanding of human anatomy, and armed with a range of medicinal herbs and potions, the ancient doctors ensured that any injuries on a building site, say, cutting yourself with a copper chisel, or breaking a bone while pulling a giant block of limestone, any injuries could be attended to and treated quickly. Again, Hesi Ra was overseeing a profession that helped build the Steppe Pyramid. For his service, Hesi Ra received the ultimate reward. Hesi Ra went to his eternal rest in a tomb of magnificent splendour and beauty. It was a mastaba tomb, a long flat rectangle with chambers inside. And like any mastaba, it included decorations showing the man himself and the afterlife he hoped to achieve. But oh, Hesi Ra's decorations are more beautiful than anything seen before. 
His tomb is filled with artwork that is so well crafted, so carefully created, that it simply dazzles the eye with its beauty. Among other things, Hesira's tomb included tall wooden panels showing the man himself at work and covered in delicate hieroglyphs. From this, we can get a glimpse at the man himself. Hesira appears in wood with dark brown skin, black hair in tight curls, and a prominent nose. Little touches of carving bring out the details, like the deep groove of his cheek line, and the hint, just a hint, of a sneer or frown. Hesira appears aloof, in command, a man of power and dignity, a man in a world that allowed him to rule. Whether you like his face or not, Hesira's tomb is amazing in its artistic achievement. The work is second to none, and this plays out in other parts. Apart from the hieroglyphs and the images of Hesira himself, the man also commissioned a scene showing the range of tools that he used in life. We see on the walls pictures of offering tables, gaming boards, weights and measures, axes, chisels, hammers, yardsticks, and line-of-sight tools for measuring distance. In effect, Hesira had his tomb decorated with a huge range of the tools he used in his life. So the tomb of Hesira, a mastaba near Saqqara, was a masterwork of the day. It is as significant in its own way as the step pyramid of the king is in another. Hesira, servant of Djoza, has endured in ways that even Imhotep didn't achieve. And looking at this man, we get a glimpse of a genuine living person 4,700 years ago. Josa Imhotep Ni Ma'athap Hesira. These are some of the names that survive from one of the most intriguing and important phases in Egyptian history. They are shadows, of course, all the details are missing, and they are terribly overshadowed by the enormous monument that they, in their different ways, helped to build. But these people are worth remembering as humans who lived and died at the start of the Pyramid Age. Net Jeriket Djosa died around 2650 BCE, after about 30 years on the throne. It is possible that when he died, the steppe pyramid complex was still not complete. Work may have been underway for some time afterwards, but that didn't matter. The king's body was mummified as best as they were capable of, and entombed beneath the immense monument. There, in his hidden sarcophagus, surrounded by stones decorated with blue and with stars, the king slept under the vault of heaven. With his death, the first golden age of Egyptian civilization was underway. We will explore this story in the next episode. For now, I must bid you farewell. I hope that you enjoyed today's exploration. Once again, stick around after the ad for a short epilogue. Netjeriket Djoza, Imhotep, and Hesira helped to shape Egyptian government at a time when immense projects were underway. Hesira, in particular, deserves some credit, 
Not because he's forgotten, but because the work he did, organising scribes and labourers and managing the doctors, was more behind the scenes than the glamorous work of Djoser and architect Imhotep. Hesi Ra, though perhaps a cold man, did good work on behalf of his monarch and his god. Hesi Ra's name is interesting because it is one of the earliest appearances of a very important deity. I'm talking, of course, about Ra, the Egyptian god of the sun, one of the most important beings there was. Ra shows up surprisingly late in Egyptian history, considering how important he became. His name simply means the sun. Ra, or Re, is the Egyptian word for the sun itself, the glowing orb in the sky. As you can imagine, people probably started worshipping the sun long before they gave it life as a deity with a personality. Ra appears to us as a man with the head of a falcon and a large sun disk on top of his head, like a halo. He rules over heaven and is closely connected with Atum, the one who is complete, aka the creator. Ra became so closely associated with Atum that they are often referenced together as a hybrid god, the being Atum-Ra. In this sense, the sun god is the creator, and the creator is also the sun. It's all very complicated, and many, many books have been written trying to uncover the exact nature of Ra in the Egyptian mind. Long story short, Ra emerges around 2700 BCE, approximately, as an increasingly important member of the Pantheon. His cult would have profound influence on Egyptian history. In fact, now that the Step Pyramid was complete, the worship of Ra would go on to inspire even greater works among the coming generations. As we will see, even the Great Pyramids themselves are closely connected with the God of the Sun. Hail to you, Ra, perfect each day, he who rises at dawn without fail. In a brief day you race a course, hundreds, thousands, millions of miles long. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. If you are enjoying the show, consider leaving a review on your podcasting app of choice. If you would like to support the show directly and help me pay for research materials and food, consider signing up to my Patreon. Patreon subscribers get access to special perks like early episode releases, supplementary notes and photo materials, early or exclusive access to YouTube videos, and an ad-free experience. For as little as five US dollars per month, you can enjoy the special edition of the podcast. If you are interested, follow the link in the episode description, or go to patreon.com 
forward slash Egypt podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you for listening. May the great gods bless your week. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.